Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day! Welcome aboard the Starship Zero G Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Historical Radio for episode number one three sixty six, which is entitled "The Legend of Kung Fu." <laughs> Podcast title is Doctor Pod, and we're probably up to like season fifty of that or something, but we'll go with that. <laughs> I am Rob Jen. And Megan McHugh. Welcome back, Megan. Thank you. I I'm glad you had your your free reign of the show to dig through your comic um stash <laughs> and all your back issues. Um <laughs> whenever Rob I say, Rob, it's gonna be a Jan solo episode if that's cool with you and he's like excellent I'm gonna dig out my stash or dig into my comics and things so I'm glad you got um had some fun with that show <laughs> yes. boy I was I had a lot of fun with my Tony Stark stash <laughs> <laughs> well look I, I spent last week ironing out my uh, Tony Stark comic book drought and well what if the Marvel animated series that's over for now mm-hmm, we've mm-hmm. got Chris Evans playing the voice of Buzz Lightyear in the film Lightyear. So, yeah, I mean, so he's gone from Johnny Storm to Steve Rogers, now Buzz Lightyear. Infinity and beyond for him. Good for him. Yeah, he owns owns the world, (laughs) basically. He's he's honestly, as someone who follows him on social media, he seems like a genuinely nice guy, and I only want the best for him. (laughs) (laughs) And he likes dogs too. He is such... A dog person, it's great. He's a big softy, and he has a rescue pup, and it's quite sweet. I must try and catch up with that uh, uh, action dog uh, documentary, documentary that he did, where you know it's like about about rescuing rescue mm. dogs, not rescue mm-hmm. animals, but animals who are rescuers. Rescue. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. Uh, oh he, yes, I see. Yep, yep, yep. I'm with you. Yeah, he narrates that. Anyway, we've got like. Three Marvel films screening in the cinema. Black Widow is still playing in some places. Mm-hmm. The Eternals is coming out next week. Mm-hmm. Well, it's out now, so yeah. you can scurry along. Uh, and we've caught up with uh, Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings. It's, we've gone from being a bit like at a loss for things and now we've got a bit of a backlog because obviously Black Widow came out at kind of a weird in-between time and then Shang-Chi was delayed and then, you know, quickly followed by Eternals. But I'm seeing the new Spider-Man trailer and everything. We're yeah. really heading into um, – we've got plenty uh, on the, up, for, up for grabs coming up, so that's really exciting. Mm. So Shang-Chi was originally – bought out in Marvel Comics way back in 1973. Hmm. And we've talked about Iron Fist as another martial arts character in the Marvel Universe and obviously Mm -hmm. reviewed the Netflix series and when he appeared in The Defenders and so on. And we Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. had problems with the way that that fit into the world as it is now because back then it was very much the white saviour sort of role. Yeah. Goes off to mystical Asian mountain kingdom 
learns martial arts, comes back and is the best at it, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's a bit on the nose, isn't it? And mm. I think, uh, you know, we had we found that series to be wanting on many different levels as well, not just that it was mm. a bit got our noses a little out of joint with some of the themes and suggestions. Mm. No such problems with Shang-Chi because they've really lent into it being an all-Asian production, essentially, as much yeah. as they could in a Hollywood film. and. Mm. The original character was created by Steve Englehart and Jim Starlin, so back in the 1970s. And, look, you know, this is, oddly enough, the, the days of that other white saviour martial artist, David Carradine, doing Kung Fu. And, mm-hmm. you know, there were so many uh, Hong Kong action movies on the screens in the grindhouses and so on. So it was mm. all coming up. And, it, yeah. And it wasn't new if you were in Hong Kong because they've been doing martial arts films for the better part of the 20th century. Well, this is it. I think there's an assumption that when it's new in the West, it's new full stop. Yeah. It's the Western mindset. Mm. So we we sort of move beyond that a bit and then run smack into another problem, which I do <laughs> want to mention. Um, originally, Shang-Chi was a, a son of a fairly famous supervillain. Fu Manchu, which is a terrible name. It's an awful name when you think about it. But that character was originally the villain in an author called Sax Roma's stories. And it was all kind of designed to be competition for Sherlock Holmes. Mm -hmm. So we're going quite a way back there. So early 20th century. And the problem with it is that it's a very sort of racist realisation of the yellow peril. And it, in fact, is the story that pretty much informs that in yep. fiction. And it's still got yep. echoes through today. Absolutely. It's one of the key kind of negative stereotypes that's carried on throughout all different kinds of culture and, you mm. know, been a bit of a struggle for Asian representation. It is indeed. Which is not to say that you can't have Asian villains. I mean... <laughs> You know, no. just let's not have them like this sort of stereotype thing. Well, the caricature thing, right? Like yeah. it's the otherness and, you know, it's the classic. There's a lot of stereo- racial stereotypes that kind of fall into this trap. Mm. So Marvel had like the rights to that. And so, you know, they've got the son of Fu Manchu. So they're daughters and there's a whole family type, type thing going on. And his daughter is a typical dragon lady, you know, that, mm. that, that whole sort of thing. Um that still actually has this imprint upon this movie. Yeah. You can see it there. But they actually lost the rights to the Fu Manchu character later on. So they had to sort of retcon it and reboot it and call his father, his villain, still villainous father, Zheng Zhu, and, you mm. know, and then, then all sorts of other things have come through. And now we've got this latest iteration. Yeah. Now, this film is called And the Legend of the Ten Rings. And we know that the Ten Rings in the Marvel comic universe and in the Marvel cinematic universe, I should say, are mm-hmm. the rings that the Mandarin wears. Uh, and I'm not quite sure how an orange can wear rings, but we'll go with that. <laughs> uh, and we have seen depictions of those in the MCU as the flag mm. that uh, the Mandarin had in Iron Man 3 and also in other appearances as well. Mm-hmm. We all know how Iron Man 3 worked out and 
we all know that I love that movie and I love the fact that they they reinvented the Mandarin as a kind of a figurehead for a, another terrorist. Mm, mm, mm. And if you actually look at uh, Trevor Slattery's Mandarin in Iron Man 3, he is wearing the Ten Rings. Mm. In the comic books, because the Mandarin was an Iron Man villain, in the comic books he does have those Ten Rings. He is actually Chinese. He got those rings from a crashed alien spaceship mm-hmm. crewed by dragons. This is in mm. the comic books. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're tremendously powerful artifacts and they each had separate powers, like one was a freeze ray, one was a mind ray. Right. It's like proto-infinity stones. I was going to say, I'm seeing echoes, okay. Yeah, yeah. A lot of these mystic artifacts you know, and I'm sure they're all they're all in Warehouse 13 or in the Raiders of the Lost Ark Warehouse <laughs> yeah, or in totally. the archives with the Ancient One and all that sort of thing. Yes, you know, he's being things. looked at by Gal Gadot in Wonder Woman somewhere. <laughs> yeah. well, that's, a bit, that's a bit too much of a crossover. Dial that back, dial yeah, that back. That's, that's DC. That's wrong, <laughs> yeah. wrong, wrong universe. <laughs> okay, so uh, this latest iteration of uh, Shang-Chi's father is the real Mandarin. That's not giving anything away. The fictional Mandarin um, has, as we saw in the trailer, not the trailer, the Marvel one-shot, Hailed to the King, mm-hmm. uh, which they tacked onto the end of one of the Thor movies as a, you know, as, a, as an extra. We saw um, Trevor Slattery in jail after Iron Man 3. He was the actor playing the Mandarin, mm-hmm. and he gets broken out of jail and gets taken away. And um, this is uh, all sort of backstory, but... Eventually we know that the the Mandarin is a character in this film and he is the key character in many ways because this is a family film. It is, and I think that's quite fitting in that it's really embracing kind of Asian stories and Asian experience and family is a big facet of that. Uh, I will say it's interesting. This isn't giving anything away either, but it's the title is Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. We don't really get that much about the Ten Rings. I've still got plenty of questions about them, but I'm sure we'll, that leaves plenty of opportunities for future films. Mm. I think we should have a track here as we, as we ramble on through this, <laughs> rings and changes ourselves. And uh, what have we got up first? I believe we have a track from the... Legend of the Ten Rings soundtrack album by Joel P. West, who's the the main composer, but not the in alone one, lone one, because they've got um, popular music songs as well and some tracks. Yeah. Too, you know, and there's a whole separate album for that. But this is the this is from the soundtrack uh, Su Shang Chi, and it is the main title track, really. Hi, this is Michael Palin, and right now. You are lucky enough to be listening to 102.73 Triple R FM. That was Su Shang-Chi from the movie Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings by composer Joel P. West. And that's from the original score of the film, which is out in cinemas now. The latest, well, actually, no, not even the latest. It doesn't have that mantle anymore, does it? But it is the 25th film in the MCU and part of the Phase 4 films. And it is the first to feature a Asian, Asian American superhero and a largely Asian cast. As you mentioned before, Rob, it was pretty important to the studio and they wanted to do their best that the film contain 
Asian stories, Asian American stories, and that it be told by Asian and Asian American filmmakers. So the cast is largely predominantly Asian and a lot of the people who worked on the film themselves are also Asian, which I think is really nothing to applaud because I think that is just common sense. (laughs) Um, So this was directed by Destin Daniel Cretton. He's a Japanese-American filmmaker. He made a film with um, Killmonger, (laughs) Michael B. Jordan, called Just Mercy, Um, playing a very different role. Uh, But he's only done a couple of things before, and this kind of seems to be his big foray into kind of a big-ish blockbustery kind of genre film. Uh, He also co-wrote the film with Dave Callahan and Andrew Lanham, and it is based on the Marvel comics, which was written by Steve Englehart and Jim Starlin, as mentioned. So it is out in cinemas now, uh, and it is also going to be on Disney Plus from November 12. So if you're more into streaming at home or you're just not quite ready to head out to the pickies, um, you'll be able to catch... um, catch it streaming to your home on Disney Plus as well. So Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, it is the first Marvel Studios film uh, that has an Asian director and a largely Asian cast, and it is a really uh, Asian film. I, I think that sounds strange, but it it has Mandarin dialogue that opens the film. There's a lot of imagery about the Asian experience and the Asian diaspora and things like that, and so it's really kind of, not just a token thing where they've gone, okay, Shang-Chi, we're going to cast an Asian. Here we go. But we'll do everything as we normally would. They've really tried to embrace and forefront uh, a lot of Asian ideas and a kind of a very um, a storyline that really fits with an Asian or an Asian-American experience, I guess, <laughs> is what I'm trying to say. Right down to, and this is just a, a, not a non sequitur, but right down to what they have for breakfast at one stage. Absolutely. I think that's what's so nice is there's all these little moments or conversations that happen and touches that, you know, like taking shoes off when you enter the apartment, what they're having for breakfast. There's a conversation between some characters just about like bullying in the schoolyard, just kind of little touches that I think it's just, it's a real win for representation. And it's the kind of representation that I think is setting a really good example and more films should should do it like that, not make a big song and dance about it. So unless they're little, doing unless they're doing karaoke, then they can uh, yes, exactly. They can which do is all, also relevant. All the song and dance they want. <laughs> um but yes, so we do have our so we have our core character, Shang Chi, who now goes by Sean. He's played by Simu Lee. <laughs> And uh, he's living life as a valet uh, along with his best friend Katie, who's played by Aquafina. And it's kind of hard because I don't really want to give away too much about the plot, but it's generally about him confronting his past and some family secrets uh, and throw in some fighting, a secret organisation, a little bit of magic dimension shifting stuff and also just ideas around overcoming grief and family loyalty and things like that. But it's kind of all on this backdrop of him kind of grappling with his new life in the US and also which he has kind of, you know, found and changed his name and really wanted to kind of strike out on his own and get away from his family and coming to terms with his origins. So, mm. yeah. And the way that they do this, I thought, was as expertly staged as the martial arts in the film. Mm. They didn't give us a long Captain Exposition speech. 
Yeah. They portioned it out in yeah. perfectly timed pieces that I felt played through like a, like a, an undertone. Mm, mm, mm. And it's not easy to do that because there's certain things that you need to know at certain stages of the movie. And I thought that they dropped them in wonderfully well. Every point that they needed, every plot point and beat was there. I didn't feel like there was anything that particularly surprised me in this film, apart from mm. a couple of cameos, <laughs> which we won't go into. Yes, yes. But, you know, it's like by the numbers, but really nice numbers. Yeah, I 100% agree. I think there was some things that surprised me in that I think I was expecting it to be a city film, so like superhero life in the city, and I think that's a very deliberate marketing move in some ways. Um, and it kind of ends up being something totally different and including a bunch of settings and scenes and adventures that I wasn't counting on, which I don't want to go into too much, I guess, because we want to still leave that as a little, yeah. some elements of that as a surprise. But it was actually quite a, once we kind of get into the thrust of the story, I was like, oh, okay, this is all quite predictable for lack of a better term, but the execution was well done. And so in that way I was like, cool, I'm along for the ride and this is a very enjoyable one. So yeah. you've got me. You have to ask me the question <laughs> or I have to ask myself the question, how do I feel about a Tony Stark, basically Iron Man villain, not being fully realised in the Iron Man movies and now finally springing into mm. larger-than-life characterization in somebody else's movie. I spent about five seconds going, gosh, that's kind of a shame. I really would have liked Tony to interact with this mm. character. But then I say the same about I like. I would have liked to have seen Stark interact with uh, Captain Marvel more, you know. Sure. Yep. These, these, this is not the way that the series turned. I, I go, oh, well, okay, and then I move on. And that's what mm. I've done here. And this... Uh, the actor who plays the Mandarin, for want of a better term here, is actually great. I mean, Tony Leung is the perfect actor to play this character. He brings mm. nuance, sophistication, a little bit of wry humour mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> as <Yep>. well. <laughs> the character he actually plays is called uh, Wenwu mm, yeah. in this, and he's – got a very long association with the ten rings of the story. They have mm -hmm. changed them from hand rings into arm rings. Yeah. Now, yeah. this is a standard trope in Chinese martial arts films. Usually they're like iron rings mm. and they're used for practice. Right. Basically, mm -hmm. you know, you practice heavier than you're actually – you train heavier than you're actually going to fight. But they inevitably always end up being used in actual combat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they're the they're your kind of uh your MacGuffin for this story in in a way. But as we were saying before, it is very much family family orientated and we've been through <laughs> this before. You know, there's always this sort of stereotype, oh, Asian films, the family is so big. I don't know any Western films where family isn't big, really. Yeah. We're always joking about there's yeah. that broken family trope or the lost father trope or X, Y, Z. Like family is always incorporated, probably in a different way. But, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, family is important. I know. And it's like uh, <laughs> they, they maybe do it here a little bit more focused upon the actual duty aspect. Yeah. Your, your yeah. duty to your family. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, it goes by the way. And so here we once again have a classic setup for a father-son schism. 
you know. Yes. And we have other family members brought in. And I actually was looking at this and I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is the same plot as Star Wars. <laughs> Yeah. Ah, a little, a little. Ah, okay. ah, yeah. ah. Asian Star Wars. I like it. I like it. I think as well, like, they did a good job because, you know, Simu Lu really plays Sean Shang-Chi's character quite straight down the line. And so they've introduced Aquafina's character, uh, Katie, and she's a little bit of the lighter comic relief. And that's what she's quite good at that. So we've seen her yeah. in like Raya and the Last Dragon, Ocean's Eight and so on. Um, and I like, she's, she's honestly, and I love Aquafina, a superfluous character here. She has no real, she could have been not in the film, but I think the film would have been far lesser for it mm. in that they really need the light character to go with some of the more serious uh, energy in some of the, not that it's a serious film, but I think she provides some nice lightness. Yeah, you're right. That's exactly how it works. She's she's there to provide the every person character really. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. Because we don't actually get because the the origin story isn't told up front. Mm. This, this feels very much like Shang is kind of fully formed in a way. He's already got his skills. We know yeah. that he's, we know that there've been training stories and stuff before that, and origins and montages and things. Yeah. Uh, which we have here, <laughs> a track yeah. here by Joel P. West called Training. So, yeah, imagine while this is happening, lots of lots of buckets of water being carried, lots of punching of uh, lots of punching of wooden poles, that sort of thing. Yes, things that should not be punched. <laughs> yeah. In the marmalade forest, forest. between the make-believe trees. G'day, I'm Brett McKenzie. I played an In elf in Lord of the Rings. My dead played Ellen Dole the King. You're listening to Zero G on Three Triple R. And I have one thing to say. My name is Figwit the Elf. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Not a long track by Joel P. West from Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Uh, now I feel I'm fully up to <laughs> martial arts. You know, we joke about that sometimes, about how good the martial arts looked. Now, I haven't got a clue, really. <laughs> you know. We don't know. We've got no idea. It looked cool. That's the important thing from our point of view, the choreography mm. of it. And yeah. It, yeah. it was not muddily filmed, which is important because mm-hmm. we want to see what's happening. These are important moves. They're as important as dance are in a musical. You know, they're telling mm-hmm. a story and they do tell the story. Very true. You know, so you, they also tell the relationship between the characters as well. Uh, simple things like um, uh, how he fights, and I mean Shang, how he fights compared to his sister Si Ling, you know. And, mm-hmm. and there are interesting facets to that, and they spend a great deal of time, the choreographers, working this out because they're mm. trying to tell that story through their moves. It's another, a whole other character or characterization yeah. in the film. Very important. And I think mm. that they did that very well here. They addressed it properly. They gave it time to play out, to show the, the gags, as they call them, the, the, the big moves, the stunts. Uh, yep. I have no problem at all with that. It, it delivered what it had to, I think, in a better way than probably the Iron Fist series. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think the combat was kind of like another character here, and mm. I think the different styles of combat and also – you know, there's some factions and things that have different philosophies and so on. And I think all of that was handled really nicely as kind of a subplot in a way, even that it's 
you know, it's very much about different philosophies and different approaches and, you know, all of that kind of thing. But, I mean, it looked great. And the Ten Rings were a really nice excuse for some cool whiz-bang CGI VFX business. And there's an homage to so many other movies in this, so many other Hong Kong martial arts movies, actually. Mm. You know, And, you know, you've got to get to that moment where the character draws the circle around himself with the toe yeah. of his his shoe in the dust. Yeah, yeah, okay, I'm ready for it all now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The old uh, beckoning finger, come and get it kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Some of this was filmed in Australia too, up in Sydney. Um, Yes. You know, you can actually, he's looking at the buses and thinking, ooh, hmm. You know, you can can achieve a lot with some clever signage by just putting San Francisco Transit Authority on it or something like that. I'm I'm all right with that. It Mm. it, it all adds to the fun. And considering how difficult it's been to make movies over the past couple of years, hey, you know. Yes, 100%. Get that sweet money into our economy. Thank you very much. (laughs) Yeah. We were saying there were some great cameos in this, so watch out for them. Uh, Mm. Actually, you won't have a choice. Yeah, do, do stay through the end credits. Yes, and, and of you know, course. It's not just the cameos that make the end credits as well. It's the the actual end, end title scenes of Marvel movies are terrific. Mm, yeah, yeah. Little little movies in themselves. I think as well you it gives you a hint as to maybe the direction that they're going. And there's a couple, I mean, we won't get into it obviously because we don't want to do spoilers, but I had some questions and, you know, I did look up when this falls in the timeline and it is after – uh, it's kind of we're in real time now, right? So it's after yeah. Endgame, it's after um, Far From Home, the Spider-Man film and and so on. So, I mean, Black Widow obviously is the prequel, but we're kind of now everything that we've seen happen in the MCU has happened in the timeline of this film. So mm. you get hints of that as well. And they do reference the, uh, the, snap. S- the snap, yeah. Yeah, as- yeah. As I imagine you would. <laughs> of course. Yeah, and things that you would have been formally surprising are probably not that surprising to your everyday Joe anymore. <laughs> so, I was actually thinking um, there's a moment in one of the uh, Aliens versus Predator movies um, <laughs> or so on, um, and it's the one that the movie that's set in um, at one of the poles, I forget, Antarctica or the sure. Arctic. And the character in that, the, the female character in that is a, a mountain climber. Ah, uh, yeah. They use her skills perfectly within the film. It makes mm-hmm. sense that she can do this. Yeah. And, and I thought that the Aquafina character, when she does <laughs> show some skills, she's a driver. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, so it makes total sense. Oh, she's... I never put that together. Of course, they're valets. Yeah. <laughs> Their secret, in their secret identities. Uh, mm, mm, mm. I kind of thought that she did actually have a, a suitable place for this. I wonder, now you see, I don't know. Um, I haven't read many of the uh, Shang-Chi comics, so mm. I don't know if, if she's actually a character in the comic book. She may very right. well be. Yeah, she might have been. Yeah, who knows? Mm. I'm not very familiar with them either. Yeah. I think um, – She's definitely a good addition to the film, and I think they have a nice chemistry together. And, you know, we also get, you know, heavy hitters in the mix too, like Michelle Yeoh is in this film. Of course she is. Of course she is, and she's fabulous, and I think she should be in more things, even though she's in a lot these days, which is awesome. Yeah. Um, And, you know, we've got a really great cast. I think there's a lot of, uh, I was going to say diversity, but I mean like different kinds of, of actors as well. Like you've got your established actors and I think Simo Lu is a fairly new actor and I don't know, I, I quite liked how it all came together. 
at the end mm. of the day. It was much more mythological and fantastical than what I was expecting, but it did, I think, really nicely explore some ideas about identity and purpose and and do that in a way that was still quite a fun ride. So I was I was very much here for it. And and like we mentioned, just those little subtle authentic notes about what his life would be like and, you know, the Asian experience living in the US and things like that without it hammering a nail on the head. Um, I thought that was nicely woven in. Mm. Not, well, they could, of course, ham- hammer nails in with their fists in this movie. <laughs> so I have to convey how exciting it was to see this in the cinema because I went to the cinema and saw it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And my partner, Gail, was sitting next to me and she just whispered to me, because this is the first film at a, a, a theatre she's seen in about a year. She yeah. missed out on Black Widow. We did actually see that later on on um, digital download. Mm-hmm, Though I managed mm-hmm. to just sort of slide in and get it between lockdowns. Same, man. Yeah. And, and she just says, I'm incredibly excited. As that Marvel thing goes, does the, the pages. and oh, it, <laughs> It's exciting. And we've got, I went and saw it at the drive-in. I was quick in there before cinemas had even opened. The drive-in was opening. So I saw it at the drive-in and it was just, it was nice to be back. I love going to the movies, be that drive-in cinema, whatever. And yeah, it was similar. The person I went to see, we were like, this is, this is fun. It's so nice to be able to have these things to look forward to. And we've got so much good stuff, not just MCU, but like June Mm. coming out and heaps of good stuff to get excited for. So it's nice to be back in the cinema. <laughs> we do actually need to gear ourselves up, don't we, Rob? Because it's we've yeah. got quite the film season ahead of us. So we <laughs> yeah. and um, yeah, we're off on a good foot, I think, with this one. I would, I think it's a must if you're a if you're a Marvel fan, MCU follower. Um, off to a good mm. foot, balanced perfectly in a crane stance. Yes, exactly. <laughs> this will come out on uh, digital download too on November the twelfth. Yeah. Disney, yep. Disney Plus. Um, and, you know, I do think that it is, in terms of representation, like I grew up with having very little diversity on screen. I think I could name like Lucy Liu and I don't think, I, I didn't watch Star Trek as a kid so I wasn't aware of, you know, the other actor working at the time, George Takei. And, you know, I think that it shouldn't be underestimated the influence that this will have on a lot of people growing up to be able, you know, people who are young today being able to see themselves on screen and to see some of the stories they might hear or things from their culture on the mainstream screen. Uh, So I think I don't want to pat Marvel on the back for doing this because they've made a lot of money. (laughs) But I'm really pleased to see this and the Eternals has a really diverse cast too. So Hopefully we're getting a bit more representation on screen. So Yeah. I, I, I applaud this movie um, with the sound of one hand clapping in the forest or something like that. <laughs> the yeah. leaves rustling through the trees, yes. The ba- oh, there's some lovely bamboo sequences in this, folks. <laughs> there are some beautiful forest scenes, yeah. absolutely. And it's always I, – I'd love to be in a bamboo forest like that, <laughs> perhaps not uh, – <laughs> Perhaps not for very long, but nevertheless. Yes, with caveats, with caveats. caveats. Yeah. So, you know, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, look, I actually felt like it was damn near perfect. I wouldn't change much at all about it. I, mm-hmm. watched it. I had a great time. I enjoyed it. I, I pretty much knew where I was going except for a couple of moments, and uh, it was just fun. It was. 
It really was. It was kind of the perfect palate cleanser of being back in the cinema as well yeah, because yeah. Oh, it's very, it's action, it's fun. You know, there's some themes in there, but it's fairly harmless ride. Like it's just what I love about the movie sometimes is that it's popcorn and it's enjoying yourself and you come out and you chat about it. So, yeah, I agree. I really recommend it. I think it's probably not high on my list of overall MCU films, to be perfectly honest, but I think it's solid. I think it's solid and, and yeah, I did. I had a great I had great fun with this one. Mm. I can see where they're kind of placing this to move forwards. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I wonder if we're going to see perhaps at some stage down the track uh, another famous um, Mandarin crossover tie-in villain, uh, the the great dragon Fin Fang Foom. Oh. Mm, whose name is silly too, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? I mean, if anyone can pull it off, it's Kevin Feige and team. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's probably about enough for that for now. Just, I guess, you know, there's a relief that it's a a final funnel film. Now, this is a film, as we were saying, that has lots of bamboo in it. Yes, and I thought, very Asian, so I Asian. We, I thought we'd just have the uh, the Bamboo Spring track from the soundtrack of Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings by Joel P. West. Hello, this is Peter Davison. I played the Fifth Doctor. You're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R FM. Interesting. This thing is smaller on the inside than it is on the outside. Sorry, moustache. But we must not. Not, not, not yet. Not yet. Yes, we've seen... Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, and that was from the soundtrack album Bamboo Spring, Joel P. West, the composer. Just a little aside here, I I realised I'd been talking about um, Aquafina and Joan Rivers having similar-sounding voices. (laughs) It's because they're both from similar areas in New York City. Ah, yes, Nora from Queens. Yes. That's her show anyway. (laughs) And uh, Joan River from Brooklyn. So they both have that sort of high-pitched, mm. yeah. Yeah, there's a wee controversy about Aquafina and her rapping, actually, but let's not get into that, but yes. yes. All right, okay. <laughs> let's go to another famous traveller in time and space, mm. the Doctor. The one and only. Well, well no, no, not. The one <laughs> of many. <laughs> one of many, yeah, definitely not. She's a bit like the Borg, isn't she? Like 13 of... <laughs> 13. Anyway, oh, no, not the board. Yeah. Halloween, the Doctor Who Halloween special. Mm-hmm. Uh, shifting gears from a traditional Christmas special. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can catch up with it on ABC iView. And what a breakneck paced run for your life Doctor Who Halloween special it was with a tasty mix of old and new flavoured candy tricky treats. Uh, all made sense to me too. Excellent. So it's the first Halloween special they've ever done. Hmm, I believe so, although I think they've obviously referenced it in other stories. Now, I don't have any particular problems with, and I indeed have a good deal of liking for the Jodie Whittaker era of Doctor Who, Mm -hmm. and I rather enjoy the energy and humour that she brings to the role, which seems to be in the fine tradition of previous incarnations. And, you know, representation counts, so I'm happy for that as well. And oh, look, I'll, I'll just go for work, you know. I am. <laughs> I, I, I use that word because I do not allow it to be colonised by right-wing oppressors. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't understand it. What's wrong with being woke? Would you rather be asleep ethically and morally? Oh, too true, Rob, too yeah. true. Nuts to the dinosaurs. <laughs> okay. Um, now, so I thought that the stories in Jodie Whittaker's era, they seem to be the usual mix of ordinary and good and then great occasionally. Yes, so, variable, bit of a mixed bag. Yeah, I, I've observed that across the seasons, across the decades that I've been watching since the well, 1960s, you know. Given the sheer mass of episodes and, you know, you can't have hits all the time and I think it makes sense for there to be a bit of an ebb and flow. As long as there's more... Ebb, I guess, which I think there is, right? Jody is not quite alone in the TARDIS at the moment. She still has Mandip Gill playing Yaz mm-hmm. and a new companion, John Bishop, oh. who is a former footballer. Oh. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Also, okay. But he is a, currently a British comedian, a presenter, and an actor as well. So he, he's actually been on a few panel shows. He's had his own show called John Bishop's Britain and Only Joking and so on. And he's playing a new companion character, Dan Lewis. And he's a Liverpudlian. <laughs> so, so he's got a good accent. Yeah, so he actually plays well off Yaz. Oh, uh, yes. Yes, I know him. And also the Doctor. <laughs> so yeah, it's great, actually. It's great listening to them all. And this season is only consisting of six episodes. So they're putting it together in, into kind of a, a long story, uh, yep. kind of like the um, the Torchwood one that they did in a way. Now, look, there have been more episodes of Doctor Who in past seasons going back to the original Doctor where they would put together like 12 or 6 or 4 mm-hmm. or even 2 episodes as a, yep. a thing. They have done um, double episode ones in the uh, the more recent Doctor Who too, but mm-hmm. this is a more ambitious length one. It's directed by Jamie Magnus Stone and not surprisingly he actually is the son of um, Magnus Magnuson and uh, – oh. You know, or the grandson of Magnus Magnuson and uh, Mamie Baird and the son of Sally Magnuson. So, you know, got a, a, quite a bit of a history there in his family and television and and so on. And um, he's done a few Doctor Who stories before and he's, he's the guy who uh, knows what he's doing in terms of um, putting together these sorts of things. So he's returning for this 13th series to do the first one the halloween apocalypse which was seen in uh, chapter two war of the sontarans and and the fourth episode and all the other ones and work with other people along the way in this so he does know what doctor who is about is what i'm trying yeah. to get to in my stumbling Safe way yeah yeah and uh, of course chris chibnall wrote all six episodes of this season uh, mm-hmm. i think he co-wrote it with maxine alderton for one episode and and so you know they're, they're he's trying they're trying to put a uh, a period to the end of the Jodie Whittaker and the Chris yeah. Chibnall era, and, and good bit on of a send off, right? Yeah, and boy, what a! It starts with a cliffhanger. I love it when they do that. They just bang into the middle of the action, literally a hanging from a gravity bar in space. Don't want to waste time. I've got no. six episodes. I mean, that's British TV, but you yeah. know, you've got to get straight to it. And this one, it moves at warp speed, basically. Okay. It just bangs through there, gives us lots and lots of elements. Mm-hmm. and establishes that this is going to pull in a lot of old Doctor Who enemies as well, perhaps a few oh. perhaps a few friends. People love a throwback. Okay. They do, they do. And they're not really looking at it with too much uh, rose-coloured classes, so to speak. They have gotten straight into this as a big epic story. 
mm-hmm. again, doing this during COVID is like, wow. You know, although you can actually isolate the characters in the TARDIS at least at times. So yeah. True, exactly. Well, you can zip to another time where COVID's not a thing. <laughs> now, Dan Bishop, the new companion, he's a, he's an interesting fellow. He's a, he, he likes to guide people through the Liverpool Museum, even though he's not actually a guide. <laughs> <laughs> so he's doing that off his own bat, and he works in a local food bank, and he's just a good guy, you know. <laughs> and the enemy in this, a big one, is like, uh, something called the flux, which is okay. nasty as it sounds and has some ties in with the Doctor's previous adventures as well as a backstory that we're still exploring, a new backstory. Right. Mm. Okay. There's some great alien costumes in this. Uh, there have been lots of cat aliens in Doctor Who. Cat aliens. Cat aliens across the years. That's quite a common trope, isn't it, though? Like the cat alien being it is. thing. But now it's time to see a dog alien. <gasps> Yay! My time to shine. <laughs> and they dog are, lovers unite. And they are very good dogs. Oh. <laughs> and, and magnificently well realised, I thought. Maybe the overall special effects, the CGI is a little bit wobbly in places, but oh. wibbly wobbly is the case may be. But I actually thought... I was up for it in the way it looked. Um, mm. it reminded me a little bit of the old Babylon 5 show. Maybe these weren't as cutting edge as they could be, but my gosh, the flux looks amazing when it ripples across space-time. Okay. Mm. So, yeah, there are lots of shout-outs to previous Doctor Who's lines that they've used again and mm-hmm. quite appropriate here. You know, I'll just to give you one, it's uh, the Doctor meets somebody for the first time and she says, hello, run for your life. And that's it, because <laughs> that's you have to do. Christopher Eccleston, take note. Uh, I also thought that they did a, a great job on introducing the new companion. It just flowed nicely in there. It didn't feel like it was made up or forced or anything. It was good. I like that. And I think we're exploring a few more of the problems that uh, Yaz is having. Right, okay. Yep. Yeah, she's having some issues. And this is often the case with companions as they're winding down their sojourn with the Doctor. and. Yep. Because it's pretty traumatic when you think about it, what they do. Gosh, yeah, it's not sustainable in the long term, which, yeah. Yeah. So that's the the Halloween special. I actually like the idea they did it at Halloween instead of as a Christmas one. I think it mm. made a nice change. I think we've probably gone too far down the Christmas track now. There's not much more they can do. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, it is still available on iView. There will eventually be more episodes appearing because, as I said, six episodes in the whole season. Yeah. And, um, yeah, well, I, I think it's a strong start to this. Yeah. And if it's um, as it is, actually, Jodie Whittaker's sort of swan song in the role, she could do worse than this, I reckon. Mm-hmm. Mm. All right. Well, I think we're coming up to the coda for Zero G, actually, for the, the day. Yeah into the last round of the show. And what are we going to play as we go out? Well, I think probably a track from Doctor Who, and mm-hmm. we will go with a kind of a, a mixed trap, a mixed track when we go, which will be the Season 12 opening titles, the previous season, and then we'll add on to it the track called 13, which is kind of a theme song for the Jodie Whittaker Doctor. So both of these are composed by Segan Akinola, and mm-hmm. he's returned for this season as well. Nice. And 
The 13th track features the vocals of Holly Buhagia, and very good vocals they are too. You know, when there's a, a sort of a choral sort of singer-song sound to a Doctor Who track, that um, it's, a, it's a good, solid, emotional moment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, closing down for Zero G for today, and thank you to Kayla Larson, our podcaster, and Joe Brunatic coming up next with Astral Glamour. And thank you, Megan. Thank you, Rob. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast at Triple R's Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.